Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three of our editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined by Deputy Editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. And Galleries Editor Casey Lesser. Hi, Isaac. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about Taco Bell, kind of. Really, we're going to be talking about galleries that are entering into new spaces, expanding uh, across the globe, both to alternative uh, venues within cities and and gaining international presences. I promise that Taco Bell reference will make sense in a minute. So to start off, Casey, there was an article in the New York Times about uh, an artist uh, opening up in a Taco Bell. And I, it looked familiar and I wondered why. And it's because you covered it a few months ago. Yeah, we had a story in late July Bordolami Gallery launched a new initiative called Artist City, and they actually launched it last year. And the crux of the idea is pairing an artist with a city outside of New York where they can set up a space other than the gallery to show their work for a year. It offers the artist a really nice opportunity to have you know, inspiration in a space of, of their choosing that really breaks outside of the New York art world and the White Cube Gallery but also it expands the reach of the gallery outside of New York. In case if I remember correctly, this wasn't just due to Eric's love of the spicy chicken Crunchwrap Supreme, was it that he that he picked the Taco wow, Bell? Some deep knowledge no, of Taco yeah, Bell. Yeah, so the, the Taco Bell is actually um, just outside of St. Louis in a town called Cahokia. So he saw the space was vacant and he called and inquired about it. And by coincidence, his gallery, Bordolami, already had this initiative, Artist City, to pair up the artists in spaces outside of the city. So he was able to, through their funding, to um, rent out the space. So how did he kind of end up using the really uh, striking architecture of this uh, of this Taco Bell? Yeah, so he actually totally revamped the whole space, put in new wiring, um, and needed a lot of work. But um, the first show was of burrito paintings. And (laughs) these are round paintings inspired by the cross section of a burrito. So in terms of the other kind of burrito. Oh, Alex wants more detail. I'm not sure. I'm I'm not well versed on burritos. Burrito spring. (laughs) We really I'm glad they opened up the the art historical canon to include burritos. But but Casey, what there's also this this initiative is also gonna bring Bordolami to an IKEA. Oh, no, it's not an Ikea. Um, The next project is Tom Burr found a space in New Haven with the gallery. It is actually a Breuer building that's in the middle of a parking lot owned by an Ikea. Okay, so, you know, close. Yeah. What are they going to be doing there? I heard, you know, they had to be on the phone with with Ikea, like negotiating for the building. Yeah. So um, the associate director at the gallery, Emma Fernberger, she actually had to... um, work with Ikea to figure out the space and they nabbed it for a dollar. For how long? A year. Wow. Each, each project is a, is a year long. And so how, how did they get a dollar lease on the space? I don't know. <laughs> 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 I don't think that was good. They read the art of the deal and really because negotiated. Because it was just a vacant space. No one was using it. It's going to be good for the Ikea. It's going to bring, bring Who press. Who parks in an Ikea parking lot and doesn't shop there? Not me. That's that's unethical. At least you got to <laughs> buy some Swedish meatballs. Yeah, I've I've been to IKEA just for lunch, so so it makes sense, I guess, from from uh, you know the perspective of a gallery goer, why it would be exciting or cool to go to a space like this, um, and also from the perspective of an artist making art for a space like this. But why would a gallery kind of 
go out of its way to move into more inventive spaces outside of the typical gallery universe. So I think what you're seeing right now in the art market is kind of a, a divergence or a couple things that are happening with galleries. Um, everybody's, of course, kind of um, always competing for artists and artists' attention, artists' loyalty. Um, so one of the things that you know you always have to be conscious of as a gallerist is am I giving my artists new places to show, new and interesting opportunities to experiment. Um, so for these mid-sized galleries um, like Bordolami, um, who you know may have artists that might otherwise be attracted to a mega gallery like your Gagosians, David Werner, Hauser and Wirth, um, so forth. Um, how do you provide that kind of more experimental, more art-focused space um, where the artist really feels like, okay, I have, I have the ability to do my best work here. My gallerist is really invested in kind of my craziest and wildest dreams. That's not to say that mega galleries don't cater to their artists and do things um, to help them experiment. And I think that we can we can talk about that in a minute. But I don't think you would see Larry Gagosian going to St. Louis and and you know, buying a Taco Bell for uh, for one of his arts showing. Although if it helped him get Damien Hurst back, maybe. Before we get too uh, deep in the weeds on this, I think it might be a good idea to jump back and kind of define our terms. So when we're talking about a mega gallery versus a big gallery versus a medium gallery versus a small gallery, you know, what does that look like in real terms in terms of, you know, the amount of spaces or the amount of artists on a roster? So I guess when you're talking about mega galleries, it's a that's a term that's been thrown around increasingly in the, you know, in recent years. Um, there were only a few um, up until a few years ago. And these are spaces that have multiple outlets all around the world, um, probably in every you know major city. Um, but it's something that you know, as the art market has changed um, in the past few years, more and more galleries have adopted this model. Um, you have people expanding rapidly across the globe um, for numerous different reasons, um, but you know, really trying to gain that foothold and compete with these really, really huge spaces, trying to find kind of maybe a slightly smaller approach. Um, and then, you know, if you're talking about a more mid-sized gallery, it's probably a, an important gallery in its major market. Um, in New York, that's a very, very significant market, and they can ha- wield very large influence, um, similarly in Berlin, London, Hong Kong, so on. Um, but you don't have that kind of international reach where any time an artist could be having a show in Hong Kong, in London, in New York, all at the same time. And the mega galleries, would you say their rosters are probably like 30 plus artists? At least, yeah. I mean, I think now it's it's gotten almost comically long, some of them. I mean, if you have 10 galleries around the world or something, it makes sense that you'd have 50 plus artists on your on your roster. Um, but it's a different level of, of kind of uh, relationship with the artists, too, I think. You know, the, the more kind of artist-focused fo- galleries do pride themselves on having slightly smaller rosters um, and, and that really like personal day-to-day care um, with artists they're representing. Uh, this may be a level of detail we don't want to get into, but I'm curious about what happens when a gallery that represents an artist in one place expands to another place where the artist is represented by another gallery. You bring up a good point, and it's something that galleries are having to deal with more and more. Um, you know, Traditionally, an artist would only have one gallery in each city, um, that's increasingly not the case at all. Um, even from this week, uh, there's an example that kind of shows how people have dealt with this, and, and people come to different agreements. But um, Ai Weiwei is opening up shows all around the city, um, and has traditionally been represented by, by Mary Boone in New York. Um, but since Listen moved here um, earlier this year, opening in or in May, I believe, 
Um, and also Jeffrey Deitry opened his space. He's having a simultaneous show across all three spaces. And so you're seeing more and more of these times when a new gallery will come in that also represents the artist, and the two galleries will kind of arrange to have a show at the same time, maybe with similar series of work, um, where you know, you're getting to see a, a wider swath of work, but it's kind of happening simultaneously, so there's less um, kind of a notion of competition or, or scooping the other person on a new series. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about the, the art world, which is small, becoming globalized. So it's like this weird paradox. And I think the degree to which the galleries cooperate and split sales and, you know, uh, promote the artists to the same degree is kind of on a spectrum. So to bring it back to our Taco Bell, is these small galleries, these mid-sized galleries um, working to create a more experimental profile to keep their artists happy at all related to bigger galleries um, taking on a more international profile to keep their artists happy and, and spread them across the globe? Well, I think there are a number of reasons why galleries expand internationally too, but from the kind of artist happiness quotient and artist retention perspective, um, it's kind of different sides of the same coin. You know, if you're at a later stage in your career, you're kind of on the blue chip side of the spectrum, you want to have a show every year perhaps and you know, a gallery that has many artists on the roster can't do that if they don't have multiple spaces around the globe. You want to have a presence in every major city, and um, that is something that, you know, you're, you'd expect of your gallerist. And I, and I think it comes down to kind of, you know, are you a boutique that has a certain small group of experimental artists that relate to a certain scene or shown within that context? Or are you a mega influencer across the international art scene and that has these very brand name um, perspectives on contemporary culture? I don't think either one is is lesser or or greater than the other. It's just a very different strategy. There are definitely examples of blue chip artists, artists that are showing with mega galleries, choosing to show with smaller galleries. Like For example, um, Richard Phillips had a show at Matthew, Urs Fisher had a show at JTT. Well, and also Cecily Brown left um, Gagosian earlier this year, I believe, or, or late last year. Can never keep the dates straight. You know, again, I think in, in, in an indication that for some people, after you've reached a certain point, you actually do want to go and recapture that that more experimental energy and it's just it's really like whatever stage you're at at that point in time scale or or perhaps like more depth substance anyone who's kept uh, an eye on art market news will probably have noticed or felt as though there's been a uh, spate of gallery expansions are these all for the same reason the sort of artist driven reasons we've been talking about are there other uh, economic factors no, I mean, I think there's, there's, as with any kind of business, there's there's myriad different factors that would play into a decision like this. I think the art world in general is kind of going through a professionalization period. So people are having to look at how they can, you know, grow and, and run their businesses in an efficient and, and conscientious way. There was certainly a time a few years ago when, you know, people were contemplating, oh, do you even need a brick and mortar space? Could you not just run your gallery um, on an online platform or via Instagram even? Um, I think that that kind of speculation has passed. Um, there are certainly galleries who are doing or, or dealers who are doing different things like that on an online basis. But to really have a gallery in the traditional sense, that brick and mortar space still seems kind of primary. But, you know, even from a collector's perspective, if you want to engage people in different cities, you want people want to see a show, even the, in the fair as a kind of 
outreach model isn't necessarily the same as setting up shop somewhere. It's useful as a way to to start to test out a market. Certainly a lot of dealers have done that with Art Basel in Hong Kong. Spruth Maggers and David Zwerner cited um, Art Basel's Hong Kong fair as a kind of you know proving ground for them to make moves into that city, um, which they're kind of in the process of doing. So it's you know it's it's become kind of apparent that you need to have these spaces as as a major to be a major player in the world um in the art world i'd also say probably don't believe everything you read when uh when people are saying why they're moving to a different city you know uh, uh there was one quote in a, in a time story about galleys expanding this weekend about you know somebody expanding to new york because they like the vibes in, in the city and always thought it was an interesting place and Probably, I'd, I'd imagine if you're running a, a successful business, that's not the the leading strategy behind your business development. But you know, as as with everything in the art world, there's always a little bit of a silkscreen in front of that. I think it's it's still important in this industry um, to maintain that uh, that kind of specter of of creativity and 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 looseness around every decision making. I think you know people are wary of the of going the Silicon Valley road of, of spouting big ideas, um, but actually having strong kind of business fundamentals behind it still, even if that's seeping more and more into how they execute on their businesses. Yeah, definitely. I was speaking with a gallery director whose gallery recently moved to New York, and they were talking about how it's so important to be involved in secondary market in addition to your primary market program. Um, because say, you know, you're a mid-sized small gallery with a show of paintings and let's say each painting is thirty thousand dollars and you sell ten of them you have three hundred thousand dollars half of it is going to go to the artist then you have to account for the ten percent discount you have to account for the rent of the gallery you have to account for your employees um the costs kind of just add up so quickly that you know you need some other outlet in which you have an income and in terms of the kind of just huge number of galleries we've seen to move to New York in this past year. Um, I think that, you know, this city is, is much more business friendly than a lot of the other major art capitals. We don't have the artist resale right. Um, we don't have the same drama around Brexit that we do have our own little presidential conundrum coming up next week. Um, so if you're going to make a major push in terms of expanding your business into the secondary market or really just try to make a much bigger imprint on the art world at large, it makes sense that you'd want to have a space in New York to take advantage of those of those more favorable business conditions. Clearly, this isn't new. This has all happened before, and we'll be looking for the year ahead if there is a shakeout in galleries. And we haven't even scratched the surface on galleries that are closing, so this is an ongoing conversation that we can have. All right, well, we'll have to leave it there for now, but fodder for the next podcast. So, Casey, where will you be drinking your white wine in the art world this week? We actually already mentioned where I will be this weekend. Uh, Ai Weiwei has... Four shows actually opening, both of the Mary Boone spaces, Listen in Chelsea and Jeffrey Deitch. And all of those shows open on Saturday, November 5th. Are you going to run to all three from like one to one to one? Yeah, it's going to be a, an Ai Weiwei marathon. Good luck. Alex, what about you? Well, I'm headed to Shanghai on Monday morning. I'll get there on Tuesday afternoon for uh, West Bund. Uh, which is one of a few different art events that are happening in the city um, next week. I'm going to be there um, through the weekend, see Art 021 as well, another fair, um, which strangely, a lot of galleries are exhibiting at both of them because uh, they didn't used to happen at the same time, and they've, they've converged on this week, this year, um, probably due to the fact that the Shanghai Biennial is also opening um, towards the end of that week. 
um, then I'm headed up to Beijing to um, visit a private museum or two and and see some artist studios and, and explore the, the Chinese capital. Wow, ours is so similar. I'm going to be <laughs> lying on my couch. This is a trick answer, but I'm going to allow it as the host. I'm going to be lying on my couch, but reading um, this incredible book that I'm that I'm a little bit of the way through. It's called Mounting Frustration, the Art Museum in the Age of Black Power. So kind of going to be accessing the art museum from my couch. It's uh, So far, it's a really incredible look at New York in the in the late 1960s at these major uh, institutional shows um, as they tried to diversify, but really ended up just completely alienating uh, African-Americans. And, and I highly recommend it. It just came out. The author is Susan Kahn, and she is um, a professor at Yale. This is a good airplane read? I love it. But I'm, you know, I'm a nerd. You're a museum so guy. You I'm, love the, I love museums. museums. Some of the things these museums did, I mean... We might have to talk about it on a separate podcast, but they're just like the biggest blunders of all time. I can't believe it. Are you going to write a story on it? Maybe. You know, this is a, this is a pitch meeting now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us this week. That's all we have time for. Alex and Casey, great to have you as always. And see you guys next time. Please remember to rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. Our producer is Abigail Kane, and the theme music is by Broke for Free. See you next time. Bye.